0: yeah i think well, i mean but one thing i think that definitely the this is the thing that interests me so much in building uh um and why i'm why the building industry sometimes troubles me but the thing that fundamentally is interesting to me about building is that it is a place where individuals are connected either in the process of making it or in the pro- or or because they live there
1: welcome to what two buildings do all day in this episode i speak to adrian duncan from his apartment in berlin and my home in dublin adrian is a structural engineer and a visual artist he's a filmmaker and now also he is a celebrated author, with two novels published to date, Love Notes from a German Building Site, and A Sabbatical in Leipzig. In late June, in fact, Adrian was awarded the inaugural John McGahern Annual Book Prize for Love Notes. Much of our conversation relates to this book, and its portrayal of engineer Paul and his life and work on a building site in Berlin. Adrian's writing captures the often tough and socially complex world of building sites, and in the podcast you'll hear some extracts from this book, read by actor Steve Murray. Growing up in Longford, in a house his father built, Adrian became very interested in bungalows and the phenomenon of bungalow bliss, and he has written too about this period in Irish life and what these buildings are, what they do, and what they mean to the people who build and live in them. To begin our conversation, I asked Adrian if his interest in the bungalow stemmed from growing up in one, or from some other, more academic place.
0: When I grew up, um, I was growing up in the bungalow bliss houses. And to, to me, when I was younger, it, they were just houses. You know, I wasn't really thinking about their, their, their cultural position or, any, or their architectural value or any of that kind of stuff at all. My father was a, a, um, was a, a, a structural engineer as well. And he used to um, do house designs for people during the 80s and 90s. So in his office, which was adjoined our, 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 the bungalow part of our house, there would have been loads of bungalow bliss houses, house manuals around, so whenever clients would come up to his house looking for planning permission, he would be able to talk them through these different designs that by the late 80s, early 90s had become a kind of vernacular. Um, so I had seen these, these uh, manuals when I was younger and I just thought they were very, very interesting, but I'd completely forgotten about them until I went back to art college in 2008, um, having studied originally as an engineer and worked as an engineer in the, in the business. Then I returned to Art College in 2008 to study Fine Art in Dunleary and then Art in the Contemporary World in um, NCAD. And it was during that Art in the Contemporary World course with Francis Halsall particularly, and while Declan Long was teaching on it as well, but Francis Halsall's course particularly where he was talking about other modernisms around the world. And this course he taught with Kathleen James Chakrabarty with the UCD students, architecture students. And they were talking about different modernisms. So let's say, for instance, they were talking about the Brazilian modernisms, which are a mixture of European architecture and local architecture. And they developed these sort of uh, aesthetics in Brazil, or let's say we looked also at Nigeria, or we also looked at India, to sort of try to understand what the modernist seeming architecture of those countries, where it came from, why it looked like that. So it was during those classes that I kind of started thinking about Ireland and what our version of that other modernism was. And it struck me very, very quickly that the bungalows were a very, very striking example of that other modernism, this blend, this strange mix of um, architectural styles and local influence, which is essentially my starting point for looking at the bungalows. So from there, then I decided that I would write my master's thesis on this subject, that, that I, this was a source of enormous curiosity for me all of a sudden. So I started looking at. The, not just the manuals and the history of the manuals and how they came out and how they developed and how they changed, which in and of itself is a very interesting story, but also what I was led to were the cultural conditions that underpinned the emergence of the whole thing. And these cultural conditions during the 60s and 70s were of great interest. So these emerged from things like ed- shifts in education, um, changes in planning laws Changes in the type of education that was available to people and the type of skills that were available in that education, particularly through RTCs and things like that. So it was all of these things. Then, of course, there were other things like American influence um, in terms of ways of living on the countryside, American TV um, stations, TV programs coming in, influencing aesthetics and what people desired, and also the the emergence of the car as a way of moving through the countryside, but also the the way in which people moved through the countryside. So it wasn't so much agriculture that was dictating um, moving through the countryside. It was more so jobs that were emerging in places like IDA buildings throughout the countryside. So a kind of different types of material and immaterial labor. And these centers of labor, these IDA buildings, required a mobile um, generation of people. So it was all of these sort of cultural conditions that were uh, that led to the way of the bungalow and the look of the bungalow. Not, not, not And I'm not even mentioning yet Jack Fitzsimons' book, the, the, the actual originate, originator of it. I was trying to understand why the book would become popular, as opposed to the look of it or the things in it, you know. So that was the first, that was the kind of the first stepping off point, And that's what I entered into, um, in terms of my approach.
1: When you write about them, and when you talk about them, you bungalows, which I think, let's say, is not, common in say architectural discourse and you know when when people write about that time or write about those buildings it's very often immediately critical or judging them in a sort of way that places a set of criteria values on them which you know you've already started to unearth some of the other values and, and criteria out of which they emerge but you write about them through their lived experience I mean you go to great pains to describe the the reality of them the reality of their Physical and material character, the reality of their um ex you know what it's like to be in one in terms of noise in terms of fire in terms of color, and even down to details about how some houses are occupied or appropriated in ways which just by people who live there and distinguish them from holiday homes. Can you talk a little bit more about that because I think that's that's a, it's um it sort of starts to reveal and unearth a kind of way of thinking about these houses that that is usually not recognized as being of any Value we just we just think that they're bad on the landscape or that they're selfish yeah, or individual yeah. you know
0: yeah And um, I think what's one thing that's really important I think um, is that the type of skill sets that were available to people who built these homes so a awful lot of these bungalows were self built so to do this they required a certain amount of modularity in the um, the materials for building so to make it an easier thing to build as opposed to a highly skilled type of building it's a quite a simple form of building other than the pouring of the foundations, the actual building of blocks can be done with um, skills learned at a technical at a technical school. Um, so you have the modular blocks, you've got the modular sills and the modular um, lintels. You've got the modular trusses, you've got the modular clay tiles, you've got the modular windows. So the aesthetic of the bungalows emerged in relationship with the emergence of the off-the-shelf modularity of the building products. So room shapes, window shapes even though the window shapes related to the floor area in one, in one degree or the minimum floor area in one degree they also related to the actual modularity so you had very particular sizes and that became what was used so there was an off, off the shelfness to the building um, the, what's interesting about the building of the bungalows also is that it seems to me certainly from what I understand um, and certainly in my experience seeing them being built when I was younger was that there was this sort of last conscious link to the mehel to the traditional method, so an awful lot of these bungalows, certainly our home, was built by my father and two of his friends, and then he would help his friends build theirs. So this was going on uh, at the time where there was just labour was shared as opposed to paid for, and um, this would have definitely be going on in the Midlands up until the mid-eighties. You know, before the professionalisation of it all kind of started or the monetization of it started really taking hold. So that the kind of the modularity of the of the pro of the building products is one thing. But then also within the buildings itself, the types of materials that you came across, which we were talking about, um, in terms of the how this kind of cold, hard concrete was dressed, was done in a way um, that at times was extremely rudimentary and simple. So you could literally have carpet tiles just onto a concrete floor. Um, you could have linoleum. Um, you could have different patterns and colors. So this produced a, a sensory experience for the person growing up. But also the heating systems in these bu- in these bungalows were quite particular in that they were centralized. So they were built, the heat came from the fire, which was in the sitting room, and that flue was often shared with the uh, range in the kitchen. And this is what heated the water that was then sent out through uh, the house. Um, but because that heating system was quite inefficient, the, the radiators at one end of the house would be far colder than the other ones. But also, at this time, the sounds that were coming from the house indicated a type of a type of time of rest and time of labor. So when you were growing up, when the radiators start creaking into life, you start realizing that's, that the working day is about to start. It's sort of an unspoken understanding of labor times. And then at night, when the creaking starts dropping off from the, from the fire in the sitting room, you realize that this is a time of rest. So these sort of sounds of system start in- indicating to you at a very young age as to when rest and work ha- happen, which is quite different to how a farmer might think of rest and work so that those, those, these are the aspects of the of say the internal systems and the actual um, buildings then when you look at them from the road, I think you're correct in saying that they're read very very differently between the west and the Midlands or the Midlands and southeast and the west. I think there's a number of different things that are happening here one of which is relates to I'll uh, start at the planning level so the planning pack that, that was put together, that these bungalows emerged from was of a very, very mathematical form. It wasn't of a very visual form, the, the planning pack. What you had was a planned elevation-end view drawing that Jack Fitzsimons could send you or that a local engineer could draw for you. But then the actual sighting of the bungalow onto the land was done with ordnance survey maps, and it was done numerically. So it was relative to a level on, on, in the middle of the road, as opposed to an isometric drawing that would actually tell you how this thing would look in the landscape. So the actual planning pack worked with reasonable success in the la- flatter landscapes of the Midlands. But once you started going into the more um, rolling landscapes of the West, Midwest, and further West, this planning pack, this planning pack form, completely broke down because the flatness of the understanding of the terrain was just, wasn't, that, wasn't like that in reality. And all of a sudden you had, a, a map-wise, a bungalow sitting on a piece of land. But actually, in reality, it's sitting halfway up a hill off a road. So the rules that were being introduced just didn't work. Uh, they didn't, they, they, or they failed. Let's say uh, the further west or the further you went into um, undulating landscape. The other thing with that is that the west is obviously read differently by, you know, uh, by people. The west was understood as an authentically Irish place, whereas putting a modernist bungalow or a modern style bungalow into this landscape in a way that jarred the landscape had this double-edged short sword of bringing the, the West, the authentic of the West, closer to the East, um, which is not what people wanted, those, particularly cultural commentators, but it also scarred this authentic landscape with um, a spectacular form of living. And that, those are the things that I certainly learned from looking at this that broke it down. But also, a lot of people built second homes in the West, and then these became holiday homes. And as you know yourself, a house that's lived in and a house that's used as a second home have got a very, very different visual aesthetic when you're looking at them. One has got flowers, it's painted, its upkeep is different. Uh, the one that's lived in more often has got that kind of day-to-day upkeep, whereas the holiday home, by nature of its of, of, of how it's used, has a less sort of uh, expressive uh, aspect to it. So there are all these kind of things that are feeding into it, um, and these are the things that I kind of looked at through my study of the bungalow um phenomenon
1: you use the the term vernacular in in today in, in how you're speaking about this but also how you write about it and I'm, I'm curious about that word and why you attribute it to this form of construction and form of occupation of the land mainly because there's this perception that these houses are constructed very individually so they' they're constructed in isolated, Pieces of ground without reference to each other. Although, of course, there is an underlying structure which you've again you've started to unearth in terms of labour, construction, modularity, patterns of occupation of land based on employment, etc. But, but, like, do you really think it's it can be discussed as a as a as a vernacular? What do you mean when you use use that word?
0: Yeah, this is something that I was that's hugely interesting to me. This idea of vernacular, because when I was studying this, uh, the word vernacular, when I was reading about architecture, Irish. Domestic architecture. The word vernacular seems to be shorthand for the um, thatched cottage at the foot. In terms of d- rural uh, architecture, it, it seems to be shorthand for a thatched cottage at the foothills of a, of a of a of a of a mountain, or you know, in a valley. And I think that that sense of vernacular was accurate for a particular time. I came to understand that the word vernacular it relates to um, the look. Not just the, the the aesthetic that comes from the place, and this I think relates to the what I believe that the actual bungalowless houses are completely authentic in terms of their expression of the cultural conditions of the time, and I think if you can accept which I, and I believe this is the case that the bungalowless houses are a very very authentic expression of Irishness during the in seventies and eighties, it's not necessarily an Irishness that we want to accept as being authentic. But I think it is a very a, a, a very authentic expression. And because of that, then, these houses are vernacular. They're a vernacular form. But I think, so that's understanding them in that moment. But then if you look at domestic construction or the, the impact that these houses had on planning c- conditions throughout the countryside, then the, if you look at houses that were then built in, in Ireland during the 90s and 2000s, a lot of the bungalowless aspects are repeated and shared, and bleed into what then becomes a kind of a built environment through uh, through rural Ireland subsequently, and that I think adds a sort of um, a, a kind of a, verna- a, a vernacular sense to them. So I mean vernacular in a kind of, not in a, not in a kind of, I mean it in a very cold and very kind of, in a cold, I, I, I apply it in a cold way as opposed to in a kind of, uh, with warmth, you know, I apply it in a kind of logical way, I maybe maybe that's the way to say it. Um, I understand there are of of course other ways to apply and understand the word vernacular but i think this is also one that's permissible or at least i think it is
2: (laughs) a note on pedestals site hoardings are odd things they sometimes consist of galvanized fences chained together around a site upon which are sometimes hung signs and whatnot but you can peer in through them at the work proceeding more often the site hoarding is made up of seven foot high panels of timber where advertising space is rented out it is difficult to see over them when the hoarding around our site was dismantled and our building at last directly addressed the public footpaths and roads surrounding us it was as if a pedestal that had held the building site aloft had been collapsed removed and the small secrets of the site's brief life were laid bare too it occurred to me as we did this that the finished building seemed less and less the point of the building site. The completed building was merely the building site's exhaust.
1: Can you can you talk us to a little bit about building sites? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I suppose uh, uh, the. the two things that would help me introduce my thoughts into this, one of which is that when I worked as an engineer, I worked as a design engineer, so I worked in in an office and I used to work with architects to produce construction drawings that would be a solution to a building. And then there would be site meetings that I would have with architects every two weeks usually, or every week maybe, um, where I would meet with architects, but I would also uh, go there myself and walk around the site and make sure to see... To see that what I had designed was being constructed within uh, a close enough tolerance that was acceptable, so every week or so I'd come to this to a building site and I would see it having emerged up another you know three or four meters or whatever. But the actual labor that went into that I wasn't really that aware of at the time. I kind of I knew it was going on, but I, I wasn't aware of the actual the details of it and that was my kind of experience of buildings. It was quite abstract, quite numerical, and quite um, how would to say quite sort of interrupted, let's say. There wasn't a continuous f- f- uh, experience of seeing a very large building being constructed and seeing the day-to-day problems that go into that. And then when I left engineering in about 2008 and I started studying in art college at um, something a very, very simple thing happened. I was, I was playing with materials in the sculpture um, studio. And again, it was an extremely simple thing that I was doing. I was just picking up different types of materials, timber, steel, you know, concrete, whatever, plaster, and I would just be playing with them in my hands and making little constructions with them. And um, what was sort of extraordinary for me at the time was that I was relearning material, but at a to-hand basis. So instead of a material being understood in terms of, you know, kilonewtons of weight or bending moments or whatever, I was understanding them in terms of much smaller forces that I could manipulate with my hands. And I had this extraordinary feeling, and the only way I can describe it is is in very simple terms, that it brought me closer to the world. That's what sculpture did when I was doing that. Um, I'm not saying that the world that it brought me closer to was any more important than the one I was leaving or whatever, but it had that effect. Um, And I'm not saying that any of the work that came out of it had what is of any merit, but it had that effect. And the effect to me was very, was important, certainly eye opening. then, with those two things in mind, I started rethinking about building sites, um, and then when I revisited building sites again, after that I would take much greater notice as to what was going on, I would photograph it in a very, very different way, I was much more aesthetically open to the building site, but also I was also much more interested in terms of, not just the infrastructure of the of the building site, um, that we all kind of know and see, like scaffold and, you know, um, uh, beams half built and that kind of stuff or you know lift pits uh, half constructed but i was more i was becoming more interested in the infrastructure behind that again which consisted of the interactions between human beings drawings mistakes um, the uh, misunderstandings this kind of stuff that's utterly human and it is uh, it involves uh, conversations between a number of different types of individuals who are negotiating through a number of different levels of hierarchy and the language differences between these hierarchies, between management and, say, unskilled labor, are entirely different language uh, uh, worlds. And they're oftentimes very disconnected. But the site engineer is often the figure who has to negotiate all of these different hierarchies from the architects talking about you know, a finish or a particular, say, um, section of a building, all the way down to, say, asking... Um, you know, a general operative to move scrap from one side of a building to another. So that then, to me, became the sort of figure that would be really interesting in writing about in Love Notes from a German building site. And coupling that then with the confusion of not understanding the German language, had it produced a possibility to, to, to write something interesting. So that's sort of where I went. That's, that's where that book came from, that uh, that, that novel came from. Um, Love Notes it was a mix of all of these sort of formative experiences between engineering art and language and building and then that's it was from that the narrative came essentially
1: and there's two there's two passages I think I, I really enjoyed in the book about building sites one is where you talk about them being places that are really really serious and also places which are fun and they oscillate between those two things and then that that incredibly beautiful passage where you describe the site hoarding and as being an exhaust for the for the constructed building and somehow you're you're placing you're flipping or, in it's how I read it anyway, you're, you're, you're shifting the or you're, you're nudging kind of a value system or an evaluation of what really is the priority or what really is going on in construction somehow. How did you move between those to kind of experiential and, again, this lived experience thing, which you describe so beautifully in the bungalow world, into this sometimes quite mundane, but then also sometimes really powerful world of being involved in construction, and then also how construction is, is um, a force and how sites are a force beyond any realm of the people involved at a local level because they're, they're operating at a level of forces of capital and power and politics or something. You know, that's really interesting oscillation in the book, I think, between those two positions.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think, what's, I think what's sort of central to those two positions is that one has got a far greater influence over the other than the other has on the, on the, on the larger force. So for instance, um, someone working on a building site um, and something needs to be done at a certain time. The reason why that needs to be done at a certain time can have things to do with logistics, but often it has t- to do with that it needs to be done quickly because the job needs to be finished quickly because the client wants the, the thing finished because that client needs to earn money. So there's these enormous forces, like almost like the waves of a sea, that the smaller uh, working person just has no agency against and they just have to kind of continuously relent uh, or continuously accept. So, I thought that I've never seen this on a building site myself, sadly, but I thought it would be so interesting if one of the site engineers on the building site was a sort of latent artist, you know, and the way in which he could subvert the work would be to secretly produce pointless artworks and have them in the building site um, to the point that you could barely tell if they were modernist sculptures or sort of uh, maybe even postmodernist sculptures or if they were just part of the building site itself. Um, and I was really interested in that sort of secret of subversion within within the fabric of the site and what that might look like and what that might do. Um, and in the book, there's this no spoiler, it leads to him the the artist engineer being run from site. <laughs> Uh, because he's just not of any use. This is just not, not a person that you want on a site. And that brutality, I think, is very, very... Um, even though I've never seen something like that happen, but that brutality would be part of every building site. They're very, very unfair places, I believe, particularly to those with less and less, less and less power. But... Um, and that's why I think the site hoarding is such an important and interesting and political space, because apart, f- because it is, apart from the fact there's this whole safety issue, the keeping that site within... These kind of lines. But there's also a sort of secretiveness to it all and that there are certain rules and bending of rules and uh, fairnesses and unfairnesses that can be exploited within that space as well. And that to me was, that to me just made that hoarding very very interesting as a result because it has these number of different values some of which are very important as apparent from outside and some of which are quite apparent from inside <laughs> depending on which position you are within the building site. So um, that's kind of where, that's what I was kind of that, that was kind of what I was thinking of when I was writing that stuff. When those thoughts started appearing, let's say, when I was read, write, writing the book um, and when I was imagining these figures um, doing types of work that I might have done many years ago when I was a student but have not done as a sort of professional person. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of where that stuff came from, I suppose. Yeah.
1: And this might be an unfair question, but <laughs> but you've obviously designed them and then worked on them and now write about them and film them and... I mean, do you have a, have you come to a conclusion or are you, do you have an operating definition of what you think a building is? I mean, this is something that really, <laughs> really keeps me uh, awake, uh, this kind of trying to continuously redefine and understand what a building is, because it's not something that appears in a property supplement or something we just buy and sell. It's, you know, it's, it's, your work st- is starting, I think, or has started, or really, for me anyway, it really unearths so many of the, the complexities of what the, what the, what a building is and m- more actually even what it does because you're again consistently, and we might already have touched upon this consistently. You're, you're, you're interested, I think in, in work, right? So, so building sites or buildings themselves somehow are places of and from work. So I don't know, do you have a, do you have a sense of what do you think it is?
0: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, well, one thing I think that definitely, the, this is the thing that interests me so much in building uh, um, and why I'm, why the building industry sometimes troubles me but the thing that fundamentally is interesting to me about building is that it is a place where individuals are connected either in the process of making it or in the pro- or, or because they live there and i think in the process of making it there's different types of connection and um, i when i finished working as an engineer i remember walking around a very very large building that i finished on and it was a difficult building Um, And I remember walking around at the end, looking at the building, and all of the sort of structural solutions that i come up with over the course of the building, because the building was an office block, they were entirely covered over, and you couldn't see any of the actual ingenuity of the joints or any of that kind of stuff that I had um, put time and effort into. I knew they would never be visible. And I realized after I walked around that building a few times, I kind of thought to myself any engineer could have done this you know I my my specificness has no real uh, is, is in no way visible here um, and I remember being a little dejected by that and I think that's why I was so drawn towards visual art then because I thought well even if I do something very small at least I can kind of go well that unimpressive thing over there at least I can say well I did do that whereas this enormous building over here? it doesn't really matter. Another engineer would have done it just as well, I'm sure, probably even better, you know? So I think connection is very important in the process and, and in terms of what's seen, um, in terms of the building. But then I think in terms of home, that also I think has, has, a, has a, their implications. Because I think if the connection someone has when they build their home is different to uh, the connection they have, than if to, compared to when they move into a home, a finished article. Um, and I definitely think that the bungalow bliss houses were definitely, were, were one of the last moments mass when that when that kind of, when there was, a, a lot of people would have had that feeling, whether a husband, it was quite traditional in this sense, a husband and wife would largely get the money and build their home. And that was done in, in numbers of tens of thousands through the late 70s and 80s. And that to me was the last moment when that was kind of happening. So I think there is a difference between those two things. Just to bring it back to the sort of more domestic here, this is an experience I had when Neve when and I moved here to Berlin. When we moved into this apartment, it was completely unfurbished. It was completely white walls. There weren't even light bulbs in it. And I remember at the time being kind of taken back by this because my previous uh, renting experience was to move into a place that had pretty much all of the basics in it, and sometimes more than what you would want, like an enormous sofa. And I found it very, very interesting uh, over the period of time Finding things on the street and slowly building what it is that you would want into the apartment, but I also found because I maybe because I would studied art that I found myself doing drawings on these bare walls that I still do now, but I've less room to do, draw them on. I think I've shown you some of these tape drawings. Uh, they're not dissimilar to the sort of work you're doing, um, and that kind of um, that aspect. So, th- so that experience of of um, of moving in and dressing your apartment was also. Something that I've found quite enjoyable to do, uh, putting up shelves, even choosing the timber, that kind of stuff, and um, and I think a lot of people can relate to that. With in terms of DIY, like a lot of people like doing DIY, and I think those these are the connections I think that people enjoy and um, in domestic space, but also in building in a larger scale as well. So I think connection to the process, what your connection is, I think that's that's the thing that I think is important in building.
1: Yeah, I think you you very lovely. You know, there's the description of something being. Almost continuous. So you know the the mm-hmm. construction, let's say, in which could be scaled from the assembly of the entire apartment block right down to putting up a shelf is a is a continuous process. And you're talking about the the relationship to the people and place and physical structures as part of the process. But again, it comes back to this thing of appropriation through action. You know, um, yeah, almost yeah, as if yeah. if things find their value and we find our value through things when we're act with and through them. And I think that's very apparent in some of the, the descriptions i mean is it too much to think i mean do you when you write about buildings um and when you start now having you know done it for so long do you feel um i mean do you think that they have they are somehow protagonists or they have somehow personalities or characters or or are they where do they sit within your your head in terms of how you start to describe them um and and construct uh, other people's experiences of them of them through through words and maybe that brings us you know to the a sabbatical in leipzig where it's set in a singular apartment and yeah. and somehow the apartment is is definitely part again part of this this story it's not passive but it's yeah
0: yeah, yeah that's a good question and um, i it's funny because i think m- because i'm perhaps yeah i think when i when i look when i'm looking at the outside of a building which isn't rarely the way that i talk about buildings i'm thinking about it in terms of uh I'm not thinking about it in terms of the architectural decisions necessarily. I'm thinking about the sort of it it's, it's how it sits within a series of cultural forces, and um, what can that building tell me about the cultural forces from which it came. But more often, when when I write about buildings, I'm writing about them from within, from inside them, and I'm imagining imagining outward from them. And within the within a building, you have very very simple structural elements. You have vertical and horizontal elements, and these things are made up of different types of materials, whether it be steel, plasterboard, timber, b- brick, whatever. And this produces very different uh, sensations when you're living in them. And they produce very different uh, experiences when you're living in them. Sometimes they're quite uh, plastic, the experiences. You know, a timber floor is very, very different to a concrete floor. But also, if a building is made of timber brick, which my building here in Berlin is, that sound and shudders and fellow livers, um, fellow dwellers, uh, show themselves in, in your apartment space very, very differently, whether it be through shutters sent down through walls that um, on, in some instances shift books off off shelves um, or if it's just through people pounding around upstairs annoyingly or this kind of stuff. So I think I definitely approach the idea of a living space from from within and I definitely approach it from the materials of of from which it has been made as opposed to necessarily how, um, you know, the actual finish of the materials. It's not the surface so much of the materials that I'm so drawn to. It's more the, the actual stuff of them, the sort of uh, how they respond to movement. Um, those are the things that that's, I think that's, it's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it too much, but just thinking now about it, that's definitely a pattern that I follow. What is the stuff of the building and how does that impact the living in it? Uh, at a very very basic and fun kind of very very basic level, I suppose, um, and from then, I can move outwards, sort of safely. I, you know, I suppose I'm still employing very engineering patterns in terms of you know you start with something solid and move forward outwards, and I think that was the case with and the in Leipzig, the the apartment in that novel, even though it's based in Bilbao, it's completely set upon my apartment here in Berlin, the structure, the layout, and the actual structure of it. So I was able to write with considerable ease, actually, about that apartment, that fictional apartment in Bilbao, because I was basing it upon my apartment here in Berlin. And I was able to lead my way through it very, very simply and very clearly in my own head. And when you're writing, if you know, if you have a kind of a fairly immediate experience of what it is that you're going to write about, you don't need to do a great deal of writing that describes for you to understand the world that you're actually writing, because you kind of get it already. So what I mean by that is that, say, for instance, if I was going to write about a different apartment that I hadn't lived in, I would have to describe every aspect of that apartment to myself first in the writing. So as, me, so as I could actually understand the building myself as, a, as the writer. But then when you go to read that subsequently, it's just got too much stuff in it. It's just, there's just too much description. And you lose that sort of uh, the, the, the sensuousness of it. You, it, you cram it. It's over crammed with detail. Whereas when you're used to the space, you don't need to over-cram it because you know it and you're just like, yeah, I know how to describe this. I don't need to tell about every single window and nook and cranny because the reader can put that together in their mind. And that's something that's very, very interesting. There's something that I find very interesting about descriptive writing and the the sort of structural, the way in which a reader might put that space together in their mind. Flannery O'Connor, an American writer, talks about sensual strokes in writing and she talks that... She, talks, she talked about three sensual strokes being the minimum for a, for a good piece of descriptive writing. And I think that's the case, certainly, when you're talking about buildings and you're talking about being in a space uh, in terms of just pure literary description, that you have to leave space for the reader to imagine the rest of the structure around them. So you might just say a window, a fall of light on the wall, um, you know, a plant hanging from the ceiling. And all of a sudden, that reader can kind of put that together fairly quickly but if you say everything, then the reader will struggle to put that together. So that's those that movement between the fundamental and basic structure of a space and the fundamental and basic structure of a description are things that I find meet each other quite uh, quite easily and to me sometimes satisfyingly. Yeah. So that that's the aspect that I enjoy about, it. and that's why I think I write more often about inside than necessarily talking about something to the outside. Maybe it's just I just I. I find looking at a large building as an architectural, say, work, it's just it's too confusing for me, or right? I just don't have the tools to talk about it well. You
1: know? Well, I, yeah, perhaps maybe, but it, I think also we spend most of our life inside. When you when you really count the hours, and I think it is can be easier. I, mm. I I mean when you start talking about the stuff of the place, um it reminds me of Daniel Miller, who talks about you know he, uh, material culture and and objects, but he also points to but doesn't go there, talking about the house being as you know the elephant of stuff. So it is the almost the ultimate thing that you're describing in a sense that that it's this object or a set of objects that that allow us to oscillate back and forth, connect to things that aren't in the room, to understand who we are in relation to space. And it's, it's exactly right, I think, or when you start to talk about how you might describe a place to live but not in a way that's determining or kind of fixing people's view because what you're trying to do is encourage them to explore and relate to their own place, isn't it? And to move back and forth exactly, in the way that yeah. they do anyway, but through through the lens of what you're writing. And um, exactly. I think it has huge value within how we understand buildings. Actually, that 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 idea, um, rather than always telling us what they are and what they do and how yeah. we made them and how much they cost, and you know, because I think that's that's yeah, how people yeah, yeah. Uh, how people appropriate yeah, the language um, too. Yeah, I
0: think so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. So how is how is life in
0: Berlin? Like, yeah, it's good. Um, what am I up to these days now? Yeah, I'm working away now on another book uh, and working away on another project with my friend Fergie Wards, who I made the Peter Rice film with. So, yeah, busy um, and the weather's good at the moment. Um, um, but it's funny, It's I've been here seven years and I'm kind of over and back seven years, let's say, but been kind of more or less based here for the last seven years. And it's funny, in the last year or so, I'm starting to kind of not lo- not fall out of love with the place, but just kind of go, I don't know if I want to stay here much longer. Uh, it's a very strange feeling because it's such a lovely city, but it's such a very strange feeling to have. So I just don't know how much longer I'm going to be to that I might stay here because I've, it's, a, it's an itch that's not going away. And I don't know if it's that I want to move home to Ireland or what it is, I don't know what it is, but I can't make sense of it just now, but let's be totally honest <laughs> I'm a little bit between uh, it's it's wonderful, but it's also I don't know, It's I'm having my doubts a little bit more more often, not about it, about my place here, that's all
1: <laughs> And in the in the last while, I mean, has, it, has your kind of reading of the city changed? I mean, I think a lot of there's been a lot of discussion or a lot of consideration of all kinds of aspects of how we're living, right, and how we're living in the city. But I think people are also, everyone, just as humans, are are adjusting their kind of barometer in relation to how they relate to their interior space, exterior space, how they relate to each other. I mean, none of us have been anywhere else apart from where we've been. So we rely on each other to kind of describe our experiences of cities and how that's changed. I mean, has in mean, Berlin, how 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 has it been in your in your kind of mind and experience it's, through that period? Yeah,
0: I mean, so, so over this period of time, uh, I remember when I came here first, two in thousand six, uh, just for a visit. Um, the part of the city that I now live in was a ghost town. Like it was, there was nothing. Very very little. It was very sort of, yeah, it was very very quiet. Whereas now it's much much busier. Um, and if this was a normal, if this were a normal year the streets be thronged with tourists, the hotels would be full and the place would be really, really buzzing and and, uh, and, and flying along. Um, whereas now, because there isn't that much travel, it's quite strange going down into the middle of the city and seeing all of the museum insole and all these places quite empty. Um, I think in terms of, so it's definitely become more where people have moved here. It's fuller, let's say. There's a lot of construction of new apartments and that kind of stuff. And there's a, there's attempts, there's sort of attempts at land grabs by uh, property vultures on large um, buildings and large um, parts of the city. And these have been met robustly by um, um, uh, by collectives, by people who live in these apartments and who, are, who have rights. Um, and I think that's one thing that's very interesting about, I think also like European living to a certain extent, but certainly Berlin and places like Amsterdam, where if you rent you're not a second-class citizen. You're not someone who's just can't afford to buy, you know. You're, you're entitled to rent, it's okay to rent, you know, and you're given rights um, that protect you to be a renter. And I think that's really important and I think there's something, because not everyone wants to buy into the home ownership deal, you know, and why should they, you know? Um, but and I know particularly trying to explain that, um, let's say to a property developer or, you know, people who are involved in property in Ireland, this idea would just be completely crazy. It's like, oh, I can't put your rent up. No, because I have rights. So I have a right to, to the place. And that is completely different um, to Ireland and um, I'm sure to the US as well. And I think there's something very, very valuable in bringing that idea onto the table, certainly in Ireland, um, that there is room also for the idea that renting is not not buying. You know, it's also completely acceptable way to live and you're not a bum if you don't if you don't buy you know and um, so i think that's fairly valuable and i think that produced that was one of the other things that was a big thing for me when i moved here was that i had come out of five years of the recession i was exhausted and i was owing rent all the time and owing money all the time and then when i came here i knew that my rent wasn't going to be put up and the amount of headspace that that gives you that there's that level of stability even just for a lowly renter is extraordinary I can't over oh, I can't overstate how important that is for someone who wants to try and work let's say in a way that doesn't isn't around making money if someone just say wants to do something that's not involved or that doesn't involve getting rich or anything like that um, that just having that headspace that that's my rent and that's not going to change appreciably for a long time that gives you a huge amount of space to think so yeah, there's the sort of physical but there's the psychological space um, that these
2: protections give you
0: Um, and I think they're very important.
2: Alexander Platz. It was six in the evening on the last Wednesday in May and I was sitting blank-eyed in the cabin flicking through the scores of pictures I'd taken during the job. I was pondering my final task. The thoughts of working through the night overseeing the taking out and replacing of this column had left me empty. Gerald had been in five minutes before shouting at Eugene and me for no apparent reason. All of the other engineers had been moved on to the next site a few weeks before, so it seemed Eugene and I were the only ones left for Gerald to direct his frustration towards. My and Gerald's relationship had dissolved so badly over the course of the job that we rarely spoke with civility in person anymore. A few weeks before Gerald had run Shane from site, He'd caught him making one of his artworks, which by then had grown completely out of control. Shane's daring and the enlargement of his interventions, I feared, was partly triggered by me. On a Saturday afternoon in late March or so, when all the British and Irish labourers had gone home for their weekend breaks, I was walking around the site listening to its stillness and, as I snapped photos of the fluorescent tubes of light fixed to the columns in the place, I wondered if the fluorescent light in the kitchen of my parents' bungalow was on at that time too. I took three tubes off the nearby columns and laid them in a line on the ground, at right angles to two other vertical tubes nearby completing a fragmented rectangle comprising these tubes glowing on sight with the one in my parents' kitchen ceiling. I stepped over and back across this rectangular threshold of light. Then I walked off, leaving the buzzing tubes of rectilinear light on the ground. The following Monday morning, Shane, as if to outdo me, had taken all of the lamps down from the entire second floor and leant them in a huge cluster in the far right-hand corner of the space where they throbbed mightily in the dark. He'd spray-painted in an arc on the floor before them, collapsed building site. This went like wildfire through the place, but I was annoyed because he'd finally ruptured the fabric of our game. So I stopped making my arrangements for fear of being caught, but Shane, emboldened, continued and his interventions went from being slight, almost laughable nuisances to serious, monumental works that created time-consuming problems for everyone on site. Eventually, out of a strange perversion, people almost looked forward to what they'd arrive into in the morning and which trade would be most put out and in this time I think Shane got caught up in the hubbub of this near-silent acclaim. One morning I walked onto the ground floor and all of the sheet metal ducting had been crammed into the shape of a giant shining cube. Dozens of workers gathered around gazing, some laughed, but Gerald was livid. Another day Shane took all of the unused red sprinkler pipes around the site and wedged them in perfectly horizontal lines between all of the columns on the first floor It was an extraordinary sight, these red lines within lines, but Shane was beginning to look tired and I realised he was then spending entire nights on site. Then he was gone and no one knew anything until a few weeks later Eugene told me that apparently Gerald had asked the company who were installing the CCTV system to do a quiet trial run over the course of a few nights and they caught Shane lugging dozens of timber pallets down to the basement, where he had set about making an expansive set of steps that would run up to the rear wall of the space. According to Eugene, Shane was hauled up in front of Gerald, roared out of it to the point of tears, and then docked two months wages and moved on to this next site in Munich. I was sad when I learnt this. But I hoped Shane would do the same again in Munich and I hoped I would hear about it even though if I did I knew that would be the end of him. I once emailed him a photo I'd taken of the collapsed building site but he didn't respond and I didn't hear from him again. I think Gerald somehow intuated that I was involved or at least was sympathetic to Shane's behaviour and this merited suspicion had merely deepened our distrust.
1: Almost every conversation comes back to how we as individuals have authority and agency to occupy a room or not and call those rooms home. Mm -hmm. When Adrian talks about putting up a shelf in an apartment in Berlin I'm reminded about how still those things are difficult in Ireland. When you rent to live it's often just not allowed to actually appropriate your house. Adrian so elegantly equates financial and psychological space and how in Berlin he had space to live and grow in his work because he didn't have to worry about looming landlords and feeling second class simply because he chose to rent a room rather than buy it. I would recommend you go out and buy his books and give them as gifts and read them yourself and that you find and support other Irish artists and writers you love. Give them some space to make more work. Thanks to you for listening and continuing to listen. There is more to come and do come back soon for more stories on the matter of people and buildings in What Do Buildings Do All Day?